Brothers and sisters, please open up in your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And as you are doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. As you are turning to Psalm 103, I would take this opportunity to to just remind you that when we are looking at the Psalms, We are looking at songs that the ancient people of God sang. And not just songs that they sang, but these are songs that were inspired by the very Spirit of God. And so I I just say that on the front end because as we read this psalm, I want you to recognize that this is something that the people of God have sung. It's intended to be sung. Let's read God's Word. Hear it now as God's word and not the word of man. Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant And remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. You mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. His ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. In all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please be seated. As you will no doubt know, it was just a couple of months ago, and and we all celebrated Thanksgiving. And and one of the things that that we do in our family is, is before we eat, we go around the table and we express to one another what it is that we are particularly thankful for that year. 
And the reason that I do this in our home is because I am persuaded that it is good for our souls. And the reason I am persuaded that such an exercise is good for our souls is because we are, brace yourself, a fast food, self-centered, consumeristic people. And to actually pause and to reflect, and to be forced to put into words what we are thankful for, well, it's good for us. It's not just good for us, though. It also grows us, and it matures us as Christians. And that is important, beloved, because as Christians, we are supposed to be a thankful people. Now, you will remember a a few weeks back, we began a new sermon series through the Psalms, and and I sort of uh, tried to to caution you then, and I'll do so this morning. I I have no intention of preaching 150 Psalms to you, but we are going to look at a handful of the different songs. Uh, Last time, we swam in the mighty waters of Psalm 100, a psalm of praise. Well, this morning, as we turn to Psalm 103, we are going to bask on the beach of this psalm, a psalm of thanksgiving. Just another quick reminder, when we're talking about these psalms, these are to be sung, and these psalms of thanksgiving, and there are a fair number of them found throughout the Psalter, these are songs that are intended to exalt God, to give God credit for who he is or for something that he has done. And and what that ought to do as the people of God exalt God, as we give credit to God, these psalms are intended to provoke from within our hearts a spirit of thanksgiving. Now perhaps this goes without saying, but Christian people ought to be the most thankful of all people. This should be built into our DNA. It's part of our bones. I say that because Ephesians 5 reminds us that one of the evidences of the people of God being filled with the Holy Spirit is what? To give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 echoes, And whatever you do, Christian, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. If that wasn't enough, 1 Thessalonians adds, Rejoice rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So as far as I'm concerned, redeeming grace, this is beyond dispute. We are to be a thankful people, and whether or not we are thankful actually is one of the measurements of whether or not we are growing in grace. This is true not just when November rolls around, but throughout the course of our lives. Now, assuming this is true, and it is, what are we as the people of God to give thanks for. And Psalm 103 is a beautiful psalm of thanksgiving because it answers that specific question. Notice first that as the people of God, we ought to give thanks for God's 
presence, for his gifts. Or if you want to use the language of verse 2, we ought to give God thanks for his benefits. So what are these benefits, you ask? Well, verses 3 through 5 mention five. Five benefits, five presents. For starters, God, verse 3, forgives all your iniquity. So, so brothers and sisters, stay with me. We have much to be thankful for. From health to our homes. From full bellies to full families. And don't get me wrong, we ought not to grow weary in giving thanks to God for those gifts. But chief among them, the single most important present that God has given to us is what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. We ought to raise an anthem and give thanks to God because in Christ, each and every one of our sins are forgiven. Not only that, we are also healed. End of verse 3. God who heals all your diseases. Christ has often been referred to as the great physician, and that he is. Throughout his earthly ministry, Christ routinely healed those who were afflicted with all manner of disease and ailments. And, and with our eye fixed closely on Scripture, what we ought to see, beloved, is that those healings, what they do is they all look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Every time Christ restored the sight to the blind, every time he enabled the lame to walk, Right, The mute to speak, the deaf to hear. These were all little previews, little shadows, little sort of intimations of what heaven is going to be like, of what resurrection glory is going to look like. And what it will look like is that every stain of the fall will be forever healed for us and for our world. Now granted... We are not guaranteed healings here and now. This is one of the things that always strikes me about the so-called prosperity gospels and these healing ministries. Every one of them is wearing glasses. They're missing teeth. They don't have hair on the top of their head. Seems like if you could heal everybody of those things, you wouldn't need glasses. The fact of the matter is, each and every one of us are going to die someday. No one is going to avoid that. But the point is that whatever disease we battle here and now, no matter how good or ugly it is, what God would have us to know is it's nothing that a resurrection can't fix. That is our future. That is our glory. That is our inheritance. It's resurrection. That brings us to another part of our song of thanksgiving. We're told in verse 4 that God redeems your life from the pit. Pit here is not just danger, though that is certainly included, but ultimately the way that this language is used throughout the Old Testament, and particularly the Psalms, pit here is the pit of the grave. It's death. Now, I remind you, church, God redeemed Christ from the pit, from the grave. And one of the many promises that God makes to you and I in the gospel 
is that there is coming a day when you and I too will be redeemed from the pit. As a church, this last year, we experienced quite a few of our brothers and sisters being promoted. I think we had five some odd funerals in September alone. And I would remind you that my funeral and your funeral, it is not the end. It is merely the beginning. The beginning of eternal life with Christ Jesus. God has promised in the gospel that he will redeem you and I from the pit. This is why Spurgeon can rightly say, redemption will always be one of the sweetest notes in the believer's grateful song. So be thankful, Christian. You are forgiven, healed, redeemed, and now crowned. The end of verse 4 says, God who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Don't miss the weight of this, brothers and sisters. It's, It's the language of royalty. This is part of both the beauty and the scandal of the gospel. God grants to us undeserved royalty to the point that we are, as his people, exalted And then crowned. Picture the scene if you can. Here you and I lowly peasants. Rebels against God and his kingdom. And all of a sudden by his grace. We are ushered into his presence. We are brought into his family. We are escorted to sit at the table with our great God and king. And share a meal with him. Why? Well, because he has put upon our heads the diadem of steadfast love and mercy. Finally, we see in verse 5 that God satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God satisfies you with good. What is it that God gives us in a word himself. That's the ultimate good, isn't it? When, when the scriptures tell us that God satisfies us with, with good, of course it has an initial, we have family, we have food, those are all very good things, don't misunderstand me, but the ultimate good is God. The ultimate good is that we are forgiven all our sins and we are ushered in to the presence of God. And that is good because that is what our hearts are made for. Being in the faithful presence of God, being in His blessed presence, that is where you and I find life and joy and satisfaction. We find it in Him. And because we are satisfied in Him, our strength, the psalm tells us, is renewed. That's what the eagle is in this psalm. It is a picture of tireless strength. You look up and you see the eagle just floating through the air, exerting no energy, going for miles and miles. This is the picture of being with God. And brothers and sisters, these are the gifts that are bestowed upon us. They all come to us from the hand of our loving Father. They are all bought and paid for in the death of Jesus Christ. And they are made ours 
by grace alone, through faith alone, as the Holy Spirit of God moves us to embrace Christ. And just as a volcano bursts and what pours forth from that volcano is white hot lava, so our souls at the thought of these gifts, our souls ought to to burst forth with joyful thanksgiving. There is just one problem, of course. And that is we are all together forgetful. We lose our car keys. We can't find our glasses even though they're on our heads. This is equally true when it comes to remembering the gifts that God pours out upon us. All too easily, we become awe-amnesiacs. We just, we forget the grace of God. The remedy then? How do we cure ourselves of this awe-amnesia? We must preach these truths to ourselves. Don't miss the fact that the author of this psalm, David, notice he is speaking, singing, proclaiming these truths to himself. You see this? He is calling upon his own soul, verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David the psalmist is saying, Soul, you need to bless God. It's similar, isn't it, to what happens in Psalm 42? You have this refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he tells his own soul, Soul, hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Please hear this. It sounds strange at first. Bear with me. Sometimes the most sanctifying thing you can do is to quit listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. Drive the truths of God's Word, the realities of the Gospel, deep down into your own soul. Get alone with God and cry out to Him. Say, God, my soul is so dry. Say, soul, you are so empty. Heart, you are so forgetful and dull. But soul, heart, it ought not to be this way. Dirty heart, dirty soul. Why are you so prone to forget all that God has done for you? Soul, have you forgot that God forgives and that God heals and that God redeems? and that God crowns, and that God satisfies. Soul, you must sink your teeth into these truths. Heart, you must lean into them. You must press on to them. Brothers and sisters, you may have to preach that sermon to yourself a hundred times. And that's because this side of glory, we often forget the benefits We forget the promises. We forget what God has done. We are all amnesiacs. Now, speaking of these gifts, I want you to notice that Psalm 103 gives us another reason to give thanks. Not just God's presence, but His person. We always run the danger, do we not, of merely loving the gifts but neglecting the giver. 
It's true that God's presence are wonderful, but I want you to understand that his person is even better. So we are to praise him and thank him and adore him, church, not just for what he gives us, but for who he is. Beloved, behold how God has revealed himself to us, specifically in verses 6, 7, and 8. We sing, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here as a church and and here as families and here as just individual Christians, we would do well to simply meditate upon God's attributes. Because the more that we would meditate upon God's attributes, the more that we would dwell upon how He has revealed Himself to us, the more that thanksgiving would be cultivated in our hearts. In verse 6, we are told that the Lord works righteousness and justice. Why? Because He is righteous and just who he is water is wet the sun is hot god is righteous and just it's not just that he acts in those ways it's not just that this there's this sort of impersonal force outside of and above god that is sort of compelling him to do these things no this is who god is he is righteous he is just Unfortunately, though, this doesn't bode well for sinners like you and I. We understand that we want our judges to be righteous and just, assuming that it is our enemies who are standing in front of those judges, right? But when it's us, when we're the ones standing in front of a judge, when that gavel comes to drop, the idea of righteousness and justice, it can be actually quite terrifying. Especially if you are, in fact, guilty. And friends, we are all guilty. We have all broke God's law. We are all sinners. And as law-breaking sinners, what we deserve is wrath, judgment for our sin. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. That the soul who sins shall surely die. Thankfully, though, God's person is not exhausted with just righteousness and justice. He's also, verse 8, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Consider this, church. God delights to love His people. Do not fall into this hideous, ugly trap. This idea where you have in your mind that God is reluctant to offer mercy or grace to you. As if God is sort of stiff-arming you and you, you have to kind of break through to make the tackle. As if God is sort of dangling this carrot out in front of you, wanting you to work for it and work for it and work for it. 
Nonsense. The very gospel itself, the coming of Christ to earth on behalf of sinners, it dispels any such notion. Our God, your God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is a self-giving God. It's who He is. It is His joy to redeem. No one is twisting God's arm behind His back. No one had an arm-wrestling match with God and, and He just lost. So was like, all right, I guess I'll do this whole thing. God loves to love His people. God delights to pour out mercy and grace upon you and I. And again, just like the righteousness and justice, God delights to do this because again, this is who God is. He is merciful and gracious. It's who He is. Continuing to reflect upon God's person, Let us forever put to rest this idea that the God who made us and and rules us and redeems us, let us forever put to rest this idea that God sort of flies off the handle, or, or we might say today that God sees red. That's certainly not the picture that is painted before us in Psalm 103, is it? God is, end of verse 8, slow to anger, more literally long suffering. We are told that Christ will not break a bruised reed. Neither will he extinguish a smoldering wick. Beloved, you go out to the lawn and you see that, that blade of grass that's sort of on its last leg. It's just, it's just bent over. Christ isn't one to come and stomp on that. You light a candle. see this little tiny flame and you could very easily walk up to it snuff it out. This is not Christ. This is not his attitude toward you and I. And the reason it's not his attitude toward you and I is because it's not in his nature. Christ is kind. Christ is gentle. Christ is patient. Christ oozes mercy and grace. And not just Christ. Father and Holy Spirit are all equally merciful and gracious. Follow this wasn't enough to cause our hearts to sing, to, to cause thanksgiving to bubble up from within us. Then the end of verse 8 will certainly push us over the edge. Our hearts ought to melt and our rebellious wills ought to fold. When we realize that His love, this steadfast love, is not conditioned, merited, or wavering. Truth is, it's enduring. It's reliable. It's steadfast. Just as you can be confident that tomorrow morning when you roll out of bed, the sun will rise so you can be even more confident of God's steadfast love toward you. Why? 
This is so massive. Don't miss this. Because again, what we see here is not that this stuff is sort of God's reaction or response, but rather, this is who God is. I have brown hair, hazel eyes, and white skin. That's me. Those are my attributes. God, verse 8, is merciful and gracious. He doesn't have it. He is it. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Just as the oceans abound in water, water that washes up upon the beaches, well, so God abounds in steadfast love. A steadfast love that washes up upon the shores of our hearts in the gospel. The exhortation then, give thanks. Give thanks, church, for who God is. Delight not just in the presence that he gives you, but delight in the person that he is. Immerse yourself in him. Let the waves of his glory wash over you and cleanse you and renew you and thrill you. And as you do, The more deeply you know who God is, the more thanksgiving will spring forth from you. It can't not. As I trust we are reeling from the presence from God and the person of God, let me mention a final reason to give thanks. Give thanks to God or his promises. I, I so want you to see this. I want you to see that, that who God is and what God has done, it all sort of collides into these beautiful promises. In my mind, I, I think of it like a telescope. And as you sort of sit there and, and peer through, and as you rotate and turn the different dials of who he is and what he has done, what you see is all of these, these beautiful colors, these beautiful promises. You see these beautiful promises. Rather, we hear them sung, beginning in verse 9. We are told, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Christian, I have to ask you, do you hear the promises of God ringing in your ears? It's not, I repeat, not promises of a nice home or a booming economy. You will look in vain here for lyrics that we are to sing regarding never getting old or having a happy marriage or avoiding a bad Monday. It's not it. But the promise is this. Despite our sin, God's grace will triumph. Despite Adam's fall, Christ will be 
victorious. Brothers and sisters, despite what we deserve, God has determined to be gracious to us. Now, if you are a Christian, and and just let me pause it, let me be very clear about this. I do not mean by that, were you baptized as a little kid? I don't mean, are you decent and moral people? I don't even mean, do you attend church, read your Bible, and vote Republican? To be a Christian is to live in light of two realities. The first is this. You have renounced your own righteousness. To be a Christian means you see your sin for what it is. You know that you have broke God's law. You know that you are not perfect. You you know that your resume isn't good enough to get you into heaven. And you also know that what what you do deserve is not just not heaven, but what you do deserve is hell itself. And so you have renounced all confidence in your own righteousness, in yourself. That's the first reality. The second reality is this. You have come to rest entirely upon Christ and Christ alone for your standing before God. You no longer cling to your righteousness, but His. You find your life in His death. Your boast is this. By His cross you are cleansed. His resurrection is your glory. His grace your boast. And you are joyfully satisfied in Him. That is a Christian. A Christian does two things. He renounces his self-righteousness and he rests entirely upon Christ. Now, if that's not you, then you are not a Christian. I am not saying that you are not welcome here. Neither am I saying that you are not a nice person or even a fun person. You might even be nicer than I am. Chances are you are. But we're not talking about niceness. We're talking about if you are a Christian. And you can be a really nice person and go to hell. It happens every single day. A Christian is one who renounces and relies. With that brief caveat, assuming you are a Christian, here's the good news. These promises before us that we're going to walk through in a moment, these are promises that God has made to you and He has sealed them to you in the blood of His own Son. So if you are a Christian, these are promises for you to wrap both your arms around. And if you are not a Christian, these are promises that God would use to woo you to Himself to wean you off of the poisonous pleasures of this world so that you would be completely satisfied in Him. Here's these promises. God promises this. His anger toward you, verse 9, has been extinguished. And why, verse 9, will God not always chide? Why will He not keep His anger forever? Because Christ bore in his own body on that tree all the anger that you and I deserved. 
we have to see that what our sin is, is not just a mistake or a boo-boo. Our sin, even one sin, provokes the holy wrath of God. And what Christ does is he steps in between you and I and God's holy wrath. He takes our place. This is why when he is fixed to that cross on Good Friday, he's not just dying an ugly death. He's dying a sin-bearing death. The wrath of God that is poured out upon Christ on that dark day is the wrath of God that will be poured out upon you and I if we do not flee to Christ for refuge. And once we do flee to Christ for refuge, that wrath is no more. It's been paid for. It's done. This is why Christ says on that cross, it is done. I have paid the penalty for the sin of my people. This is why today, if you are a Christian, God is not chiding with you. He's not angry with you. Everything that God was angry with you about Christ is taken away. God also promises. He no longer regards you and I as a sinner, verse 10. We're told he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why? Because by grace alone, through faith alone, you are robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. It's true. In and of ourselves, you and I, naked, we are wretched, pitiful sinners. But in the gospel... When God looks at us, and I don't just mean on judgment day in the future, I mean right now in this very moment, when God looks at you or I, He does not see our sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. We are right in God's sight. We're not just guilty, and we're not just forgiven, sort of clean slate, start over. In the gospel, we are positively righteous so that every good deed, every law kept, everything that Christ did on your behalf is transferred to your account so that when God sees you and I, He sees His Son. So that when God looks down from heaven and says to His Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, This is the same thing that the Father says to you today if you are in Christ. This is my beloved son or daughter. Not who I'm angry at. Not who can't figure it out. Not who's a bum. My son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. It's not all though. God also promises that his love toward you, verses 11 and 12, it is limitless and immeasurable. Let me ask you this. How high are the heavens above the earth? Well, that's how great his steadfast love is towards you. Tell me, what is the distance? Pull out your ruler. The distance between east and west. That's how far he has removed your sin from you. Christian, if you have but sink your teeth into this one truth, this one reality, then your whole life would change. You ready? This is it. If you can get this, you get everything. 
There is nothing in all of creation, Romans 8, that is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It literally does not exist. In the gospel, God's love for you is limitless and immeasurable. And I will assure you of this. Let me hear for a brief moment. Every sin of yours, every source of anxiety, the assurance you lack, all of your unfaithfulness and your unworthiness and your unfruitfulness in the Christian life, it can be traced back to this one singular cancer. You don't believe these promises. You don't believe Romans 8. You don't believe Psalm 103. You doubt. You question. You look in the mirror. You don't see that God's love towards you is limitless and immeasurable. And that, brother or sister, is why your Christian life is stunted. That's why. That's why. Still not done, though, because God also promises utter compassion toward you, verses 13 and 14. We get this. Just as earthly fathers show compassion to their little ones, so God the Father does to us. Rest assured, you are God's son or God's daughter. And he has promised to deal gently and compassionately with you. 4 verse 14, he knows your frame. He remembers that you are dust. I don't expect my one-year-old to know trigonometry. I know her frame. I know who she is. Tender and compassionate toward her. God knows you. He knows the wretch you are. He's tender toward you. He's compassionate toward you. God even promises that his covenant commitment to you is ceaseless. Pick it up in verse 15. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Church, we're here today and gone tomorrow. In a hundred years, we will all be dead. And for most of us, it's a lot shorter than a hundred years. But the covenant commitment of God to his church is greater than the death that stalks us. Verse 17 reassures, promises us that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Christian, this is why I'm fond of saying that God's covenant commitment is ceaseless. It's ceaseless because it's from everlasting to everlasting. It began in eternity past, pre-Genesis 1-1, pre-the foundation of the world. And it will continue on into the future. From before the foundation of the world to the new heaven and the new earth and beyond, God's love for us in Christ will remain. It is ceaseless. Now, lest we miss the forest for the trees, 
Every line of this psalm should provoke within us thanksgiving. As we ponder the presence and the person and the promises of God, our hearts should overflow with thanksgiving. Or if you want to use the actual word of the psalm, we should bless God. Please notice that this call to bless God, it acts as a bookend for this psalm. That is to say, it begins with blessing and it ends with blessing. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Beginning of verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's how the psalm begins. Scroll, look, scroll down to verse 20, you see how it ends. Bless the Lord, O all you his angels and mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless, bless, bless. Bless, bless, bless. This is to be our response to God. But it does sort of raise the question, and that is, well, what exactly is meant here by this idea of blessing God? We don't use that word very often in our day and age, unless, of course, someone sneezes. You might hear someone say, bless you. That's not what's meant here. It's not like God sneezed, and he's like wanting us to say, bless you. It's not it. Interestingly enough, the way that the verb is being used here in the psalm, it has less to do with wishing someone well and more to do with adoring them on bended knee. The Hebrew verb here, it carries the sense of declaring God to be the source of blessing and thus, this idea of bless here, it should be understood as praise, or perhaps even worship. So to come full circle, our response to God is that we ought to bless Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought to worship Him. We ought to offer our thanks to Him, again, to be redundant for His presence and His person and His promises. You and I, who are gripped with this awe amnesia, we ought not to end of verse 2, forget all his benefits. But we ought to thank him for them. Not too long ago, I read the story of something that occurred shortly after the Civil War. There was a farmer, and he was spotted kneeling at the graveside of a soldier's cemetery there in Nashville. There was an onlooker, and no doubt seeking to offer some sense of solace, approached the farmer and asked him, is that the grave of your son? The farmer replied, no, I have seven children, all of them young, and a wife on the farm back home in Illinois. The farmer continued to explain, I was drafted, and despite the great hardship that it would cause, I was required to join the army. The farmer continued to say this, though. But on the morning I was to depart, this man, my neighbor's older son, came over and offered to take my place in the war. At this point, the curious observer asks, 
Sir, what is it that you are writing on his grave? And the farmer responded, I am writing, he died for me. Church, just like the farmer, we have one who took our place. We sing a great hymn around here quite often with a line that he interposed his precious blood. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, because of the beauty and the scandal of the gospel, we have been transformed from the inside out to be a thankful people. How can we not be? We have tasted of a mercy that is not merited. We have experienced a love that cannot be measured. Our sins, past, present, and future, they have been completely forgiven so that we stand right in God's sight. And this same God is not just our God, but our Father. He knows our weaknesses, our failures, our shame, and yes, even our sins. And yet... He is determined to be committed to us, promising us that He will never, no, never leave us or forsake us. In light of these wonderful gospel graces, we are called to bless His name. Church, to give thanks for who God is and all that God has done. Let's do so now by turning to him together in prayer. Our Father, we join with the psalmist this morning. And we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Our God and Father, we pray that your spirit would work these truths into our souls in such a way so that we would truly be a thankful people. We are so often distracted by what we don't have that we forget all that you have given to us. Wean us off of all of that which would uh, cause us to rob you of your glory, all of that which would cause us to not find our joy and satisfaction in you. We pray together this morning, recognizing that it is a bold prayer, but we pray it nonetheless. Give us Christ satisfy us with nothing less than Christ, and then cause our hearts to well up with thanksgiving. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.